I'm not the editor of InStyle, R.L. Foxman. I'm R.L. Foxman, who happens to have that job. And I think in part because it wasn't my dream, it sort of developed. And I think that was what people's anxiety was for me. Welcome to Sand, an independent podcast covering stories of busy people slowing down. I'm Jonathan Karen, founder and CEO of Mapilim, a skin and hair care company for men, created with natural ingredients from the Mediterranean. In this podcast, we'll host influential figures, founders and CEOs of large companies, entrepreneurs with great passion to talk about their journeys and their way of slowing down. Ariel Foxman is the former editorial director of leading fashion media brands InStyle and StyleWatch. He was responsible for print and digital content, consumer and client strategy, and new revenue streams beyond advertising and circulation. Under Foxman's leadership, InStyle became the foremost fashion and beauty media brand, outperforming the entire category with the largest audience of affluent women. Foxman became the brand's only male editor at the age of 34, and held the title for eight years before resigning his post in 2016. He was listed twice in the Business of Fashion 500 as one of the world's most influential fashion insiders. He's written about culture and travel for Fortune and the New York Times, among others. He's a frequent speaker on such topics as career, fashion, and publishing. He lives in Manhattan with his husband and son, Cielo. Hi, Ariel. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Tell me how it all started. Well, I was a, a kid that was obsessed with magazines. Um, and I remember in school, I used to uh, wait for this moment where they would bring the bookmobile to school, which was this trailer um, filled with books. And you were given a week's notice ahead of time and you could save your coins or your parents would give you money. And, and I would always come in and buy Dynamite Magazine, which was like a people magazine for kids. And I remember a teacher remarking, like, I never bought the books. I always bought the magazines. And I would pour over these magazines and, and cut things out and save articles and file things. And I just was always a... You know, it, it, I was intrigued by not even the content, but the 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 putting together of it, um, and the way in which things were presented. I loved that. I loved the photography and the art direction. I didn't know what it was when I was a kid, but I was uh, intrigued. And when I graduated college with a degree in English and comparative religion, uh, I thought, mm, I don't know what I can do with that. I maybe I'll go into book publishing. And I went into book publishing and. This was back in the mid nineties when books felt slow and magazines felt fast. Uh, and I worked in books for about a year and there's no urgency in book publishing. At least there wasn't in the nineties. You would work on a project and it would go, you know, 18 to 24 months. And a woman that worked with me used to work at uh, a magazine called details, which no longer exists, but was a big uh, men's fashion magazine, culture magazine and told me about an opening and I went to work there and I, I felt at home. It was a, an environment where people were interested, not just in general interest features, but culture, fashion, art, restaurants, all, all the things that make life interesting. I never intended to be in fashion necessarily, but 
that's what details was. I stayed there long enough to get it. I feel comfortable in that space. Uh, I'm a consumer of fashion. And so that was my, my initial start. I moved though to the New Yorker magazine, which is not a fashion magazine. Um, but after a couple of years there, uh, the editor in chief, David Remnick said to me, don't be a lifer. Don't be one of the, the people that stays here forever. You have other interests. You should go to a place where you can get your hands on more work. And I did, and I left to InStyle magazine for the first tour of duty. I was there for five years um, at a time when magazines like InStyle were growing. I worked at InStyle for five years, and I then was immersed in women's fashion. Um, and not just fashion, runway and red carpet, but you know what? It is that people aspire to and how they're inspired and the information they need to, to act and to buy and to participate. And I did that for five years. I left. I was a men's magazine editor. I founded a magazine called Cargo that lasted for three years. I came back to InStyle. I became the editor-in-chief there and needed a little bit of a refresh. And I was there for eight years. And in 2016, I left. Um, in part because the cycle was speeding up and speeding up and speeding up with fewer and fewer returns, fewer and fewer resources. Um, and it never felt, no matter how successful we were, you are in magazines, that you were swimming with the tide. The tide was coming fast and furious in another direction and there was nothing you could do to stop that. And so I left and now I do a lot of writing and consulting around those same subjects. So that's my story um, professionally. Uh, at the same time, I had a, a, a plan to have a family and I got married in 2014. And my husband and I knew we were going to have a family and start a, a family and we went the route of surrogacy. Our son is now 19 months um, the luxury of being able to, to do what I do and to, to remain in the industry that I am in, but also have time at home, you know, has been fantastic. And that was, that was a balance, a rebalance that I knew was going to have to happen. So it did. You, you talked about two things that are huge decisions. First of all, leaving what was a dream job, right? Walk me through the thought process. I... I never had a plan to become the editor-in-chief of a women's fashion magazine. Uh, my work and the, the people that I worked with, it kind of all led to that. So it was a dream job in that it's a dream job for a lot of people and there's dreamy elements. Um, you're around creative people. You're creating a product that has a, an audience that is clamoring for it. I'm just thinking about being the first man editor of, of InStyle, which is a women's magazine. Yeah. And how did that feel also? Sure. It was, um, it was never anything that felt out of sorts because I had always been in a position because I'm a good editor, not because I pretend to know the women's experience. Yeah. Um, and at a magazine like InStyle, which works so hard to make sense of things that are often mysterious, 
um, whether it's new categories in beauty or it's fashion trends or it's things that seem very subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person who wasn't fully engaged, I would be able to ask the questions for additional clarity when a story would come through or an approach would come through, a video would come through. I would, I had a sense as an editor, like this isn't gelling or what are we assuming here that you can't assume? Um, and I think that made me a strong editor as a man in this space. Um, there's a cycle to media, um, uh, especially uh, with a brand like in style or fashion brands. Now there's more permission to talk about broader subjects, um, whether it's Me Too or women's empowerment or sustainability or diversity, things that people are interested in across the board. But, you know, in 2000, 2010, 2015 even, the range of what you were talking about or discussing was limited, um, decidedly so, right? Like someone needed to open up the magazine or come to our site and know what they were going to expect to see and find it there. You know, publishing is going through a rough patch, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a nice way of saying it. Um, it, even back in 2015, it was really clear that the company that owned InStyle might sell itself. The company that owned InStyle was looking for growth through efficiencies, which is a nice way of saying firing people and saving money. Um, and I'm happy to work most efficiently, but uh, certain brands that have achieved a certain level of success need investment to grow um, or to maintain their dominant spot. And I wasn't convinced that that was going to be the case. And that's the work that I like to do. I'm not the editor of InStyle, R.L. Foxman. I'm R.L. Foxman who happens to have that job. And I think in part because it wasn't my dream, it sort of developed. Um and I think that was what people's anxiety was for me. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, you're not going to have that job and you're not going to have that perk or those connections. Um, and for better or for worse, I never really took advantage of the perks that come with a job like that. You know, I didn't run to movie premieres or the openings of restaurants. You know, I think you could, you could really busy yourself um, justifiably, but I it never really excited me. Um, I'm kind of a homebody at the end of the day. And it wasn't until about six to nine months after I left that I started to miss some elements, but none of the elements that folks thought I was going to miss, you know, it was nice to go to fashion shows, but I'm a person who's seen enough fashion shows that I know what that's like. Um, And I don't need to see one again. Let's talk about masculinity for a second. Um, You've covered a lot of women's fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, but how did you see masculinity change over these years? And also you talked about me too. I kind of think there's a, I mean, there, there was a big shift in masculinity in general, uh, and like what's okay for guys to do and what's not okay. Um, and I think me too also caused a big change in that too. Um, so I think there, there's been a shift, but it's kind of moving even faster now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's true. InStyle was founded by a woman. It was an offshoot of People magazine. That woman left to a bigger job and re- was replaced with a woman. Um, that woman left and was replaced by me. So in a history of a magazine, there were only three editors. Now there's a fourth. She's a woman. 
Um, and I remember at the time, and there was a conversation at the beginning uh, when I was going to do my editor's note, um, whether to put my photo or not. And the decision was made to not put my photo in, um, in sort of like a don't ask, don't tell. My name is feminine in the United States. Yeah. Um, though in Hebrew and in Spanish speaking languages, it's masculine, but in the United yeah. States, I'm the little mermaid. <laughs> that's what people, that's what people always will say. Oh, are you named for the little mermaid? I said, well, I wasn't that young. What matters is what you are in heart. Exactly. And are I'm you mermaid. a little mermaid? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a mermaid through and through. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, this doesn't feel good, but okay. You know, they gave me this job. I was very young and I, and I said, okay, if people want to think I'm a woman, great. Uh, you know, who cares? Um, shortly thereafter, uh, my profile continued to grow as it did the magazines and they put my, picture in. And I think in the time that I was there, it went from a sort of don't ask, don't tell to like, oh, this is something cool. And there's an added value here. It sort of dovetailed with Project Runway and Tim Gunn. And people were very engaged in this idea of like men helping women get dressed. Um, and I think today, um, with the conversations around representation and and who's at the table and in part me too as well. I wouldn't say that I shouldn't or a man shouldn't have that job now, but I think it's better that I'm not the person running uh, that brand speaking directly to women. I had pretty much always worked either for women or with women. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know why I feel most comfortable like that, but I enjoyed it. Um, We've done an exhibition about sense where I worked with 10 different chefs and foodies and winemakers who have really strong palates. And we built a scent together. We created a scent for them. Mm -hmm. And each one of them, I mean, your sense of scent is the one that's closest to your reptilian brain. So scent brings out a lot of emotions and a lot of memories. Um, I'm fascinated with the connection of scent and memory. Um, So... Do you have a specific scent that you remember that sends you somewhere special? Um, that's an interesting question. I I have always known on some elemental level that that's true. You know, like I, I often will say, oh, that smells like camp. Yeah. You know, or that smells like high school <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, it's never the thing itself. It's where I experienced it. Um I don't have specific scents that I return to. Um, but there are scents I don't like. And I often think, oh, that while I can't conjure what it may have yeah. been associated with, the feeling is so visceral that I, that I think, oh, well, why, you know, I hate rose water <laughs> and rose smell. And, you know, it seems like to counterintuitive to not, that's the most beautiful thing is a rose, right? But it's a very, it's a, I think it's a very polarizing scent and I don't like it. I don't like really sweet scents. Um, I do love citrus scents. They do remind me of actually spending summers in Israel. Um, we used to go, we spent three summers as a family in Israel and we used to go to Jaffa and get the Jaffa oranges. And I remember that smell. That's, um, I mean, the we're in the Malkalim pop-up store. And the scent here is made primarily of citruses. So there's 
mandarin orange, uh, neroli, which is the blossom of the bitter orange, and grapefruit and black pepper. And the the meaning behind that was meant to feel like walking through an orchard, mm. basically. So that may be something that... <laughs> yes, it's very evocative. But it, when I walked into the space, um, I felt at home. I think it's also why I love Italy so much. Yeah. Um, Look, Italy has an embarrassment of riches. It's it's not hard to fall in love with Italy. But when I'm there, you are met with so much citrus. Um, and I love that smell. It feels like the beach. It feels like summer. I'm a person, I think, that that mixes um, senses. Um, there's actually a thing called youth. Um, Synesthesia. And I do that with numbers and colors. Um, so it's... I once was having a conversation where I said, you know, well, four has to be blue. And the person thought I was insane. Like, what do you mean? And I was like, oh, well, you know, like every color has a number and every number has a color. And they're like, what, you know? Um, And I associate colors with numbers and colors with sense. And um, it's all sort of a jumble. Uh, And I, back in my InStyle days, we were doing a story about, um, new meanings behind colors um, and how in the seventies, like orange was considered very um, commonplace. It was like the color for fast food packaging. It was the color of construction. And now it's considered luxurious because of Hermes and um, a lot of luxury brands use orange. And I became fascinated with the idea of the fluidity of scents um, and what we, what we bring to it as human beings, but also like what we are then told mm-hmm. through marketing or experience, um, you know, and talking about masculinity, uh, you know, do real men wear pink, you know, is always this sort of dumb question that people ask or parents contend with, like, do I put my son in a pink something like as if it matters. Um, but in doing research around colors, it, it, it is a fact that over a hundred years ago, pink was a boy's color. Um, like in the way that we think blue is a boy's color today, that's what pink was. Wow. And the marketing around it changed um, for various reasons in terms of uniforms and all sorts of things. But do you know where in the world that was in the United States in the U S yeah. Yeah. Um, pink was a men's color. Um, and as a parent of a young child, you know, I think what you were saying about whatever your idea about masculinity is, you just be a good person, right? Be a good person and be true to who you are and uh, you'll be your best self. And I, I believe that. I, I live that as best I can. But it's interesting as a parent of a, of a new human being, um, how often... I find myself or others saying things to my son. Uh, oh, you're so strong or you show me your muscles or, you know, yeah. um, not so toxic as like, you know, don't cry or don't be a sissy, but things that are like, Oh, you're going to be a heartbreaker. You know, these like things that are very classically masculine and limiting. Um, it, it turns out he really likes cars. Um, and trucks and all things vehicular. And I remember thinking, oh, it's kind of strange that I have a son that loves 
these sorts of toys when I didn't like them at all. Um, it's never been my interest. And even I found myself thinking, oh, that's very masculine of him. And then I thought, mm, no, why? Why is that masculine and what I like not masculine? He just likes cars. Now, people will tell you, no, actually, most boys like cars. And there's something to it neurologically or um, biologically. And maybe that's the case. And maybe that's also retrofitted. I don't know. Um, but you hand my son a doll and he looks at it like he has no idea why this exists. You know, he's tons of stuffed animals that people have given as gifts of, you know, even before he was born that sit in his room that never get looked at, never get touched. You can hand him a baby. He just takes the, the bottle from the baby, uh, doll and he, you know, puts it in his mouth and marches around. Like he, um, you know, and you can categorize it, but I just think, okay, well, that's my kid. But you do feel and hear other people say things um, or direct your child. Uh, and I find that really irritating. It's funny. It's like <laughs> you're the mirror image of so many families. Because <laughs> you're like, why do you play with cars? You're a boy. Play with mm-hmm. different things. And most families are like, right. why do you play with dolls? Exactly. True. You know, I'm like, give him the baby. Let's see what happens with the baby doll. You know. Um, so what's this like being a dad at all? I mean, he's what, 18 months old. Yeah. What was it like? That was the second big decision we didn't talk about. Yes. That's the biggest. Um, it's incredible. And it's such a, a cliche when people say, Oh, you know, are you ready? You know, when you're pregnant or anticipating a child, are you ready? Your life is going to change so much. And I used to think like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Like, really? <laughs> I, I would think so. I would hope so. Um, you know, and they're just these things that people say, you know, oh, do you know what you're having? Do you know, are you guys going to, you know, get, get the party out of your system? You know, all these things. And I was like, oh, that's not me. And sure enough, you know, now that I'm a parent, I'm like, wow, it's not so much that my life has changed. Uh, of course it's changed. My schedule's different and my priorities are different. But I see things in a very different way. Um, and it's hard to articulate. So now I understand why people say like, are you ready for this change? It's not about the practicalities. It's about your worldview. Um, it's amazing. It's the most exciting. My son's name is Cielo, which is Spanish for sky. And we wanted a name that was not clearly gendered less because of the, it's a, it's appeal, but more because, um, we know, uh, from our, our friends who are in the trans community that having a very gendered name when it doesn't align with your identity is actually really troubling. Um, and only adds to the discord, um, that people feel. Um, and we're like, Oh, you know, we don't need to name him Tom. <laughs> um, so we picked Cielo and so people, you know, uh, ask us and people ask me all the time, Oh, it's such a beautiful name. Why did you pick it? And I will add that piece to it. And people look at me like, Oh God, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, it's not this outlandish idea that, you know, we don't want to gender our child to the extent that we can, because it's not really our role. Um, can I ask you about yeah. your childhood? What it was like growing up for you? Um, I grew up in a very traditional um, 
conventional home in suburban New Jersey. Um, with a gender neutral name. With a, with a girl's name. <laughs> <laughs> in 1974, that was a girl's name. Um, I still receive mail, Ms. Ariel Foxman. You know, I, I do. Um, um, and I grew up in a household that with very progressive values. My father worked in civil rights. My mother was a school teacher in the New York City public school system. She worked in Harlem for 30 odd years. Um, and pr- progressive, but also very conventional. My dad is not your classic sort of American quote unquote masculine dad. And I remember around Father's Day, I was thinking none of these cards really apply. You know, my dad doesn't sit in a lazy boy. He doesn't play golf. He doesn't drink beer. You know, and those are the, that's what greeting cards always say around Father's Day. Like, you know, he doesn't barbecue, but you know, I, I knew that as conventional as we were, we weren't like this classic stereotypical American family. Um, and I never pursued what would be masculine, you know, identified activities. Um, I was always involved in words. I did the yearbook and newspaper and, and, and those sorts of things. You talked about the Mediterranean before about Italy and Israel. Is that where you go to calm down? Um, I wish I could say that I, I could go there as often as I needed to calm down. Um, I, I would definitely choose those places um, for holiday, but I no, I actually have discovered running in the past um, couple of years. I've always been a person who ran on the treadmill um, more for, for fitness than anything else. And I never really found it relaxing. Um, but I decided when Ciela was born, I needed to have an activity that was my own and I needed to have a goal. And I never really was an outdoor runner. And I decided I was going to run the marathon, the New York city marathon. And I would train for that. And I really, for me, it was less about when I was finishing and how I would be finishing, but to become an outdoor runner and feel comfortable. I always was envious of people who could go anywhere on vacation or business trip and they would run in the morning. I think, Oh good. How do you know where you're going? And, (laughs) (laughs) and you're going to do physical activity outside in a place that you don't know. Um, do you use like a specific app or do you just go? No, you know, I just go and I, um, I mean, I'd use map my run to figure out my pace and to chronicle it, but not for discovery. Um, but I started to run outside because you have to, uh, when you're training and I really found that I, I loved it, that it was really relaxing that, um, running by water, which is where I would often run running at night, seeing the city from a completely different perspective. I mean, I would be at home after dark, but now I was running because of the heat of the summer. I was running at seven, eight o'clock around the, you know, half of the perimeter of lower Manhattan. I would do these eight, nine mile runs and I would see, boats and bridges turn their lights on and people in parks, you know, hanging out. And it really was eye opening. Um, and I feel like I have a kinship with the city that I live in, in a totally different way. And I ran the marathon and I loved it. And I, you know, I'm not fast. I'm not great. I couldn't train somebody else, but I finished it and I got my medal and I thought, okay. And I then just ran the half marathon a month or so ago. So I will continue to, 
to run as a form of relaxation. There's nothing that I do in life that is as solitary as running. It sounds cheesy if you're not a runner, but it's transcendent. Um, and no one begrudges you the time. Or I imagine that somebody would begrudge me time if I was going to get a massage or <laughs> going to a movie in the middle of the day. But like when you say, oh, I'm running because I'm training, people are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Supportive. Yeah. Are you working on something new right now? Um, well, I, you know, I've been consulting with, with clients for the past two to three years. Um, and that's been really incredible in terms of having gone from being the head of a business and a brand where I was in charge of everything um, to listening and understanding like where a client is. I've also been writing a lot, uh, which I hadn't been doing when I was at InStyle except for our cover stories here and there. Um, And I had always written before I had considered myself a writer. I would have told you I was a writer, but, I was saying to, to someone recently, you know, it was, it had been so long that it was like, can I still say I'm a writer? And I'm, and never mind, can I say it? Like, can I actually write? Um, and so I started writing again. I was like, oh, yes, okay, it's like riding a bike. I, it comes naturally to me. I enjoy it. I enjoy the process. Um, and so I've broadened the types of writing I'm doing. I write a column right now about being a dad for a website. So that's very personal. I'm doing more um, reported feature writing for newspapers. Um, and I'm doing, uh, which I've done a lot of uh, interviews. Uh, and, and in fact, walking here, somebody called me and said, Oh, I have a book idea for you <laughs> um, based on a, an article that I, I wrote. So it feels like all signs are pointing to doing more right. writing. Um, and as discipline as you have to be around writing, it does afford you the elasticity that I like now, you know, like I can be a writer and still be home for dinner. Ariel, thank you so much for coming. It was fascinating. Thank you. Really interesting to hear your perspective and I wish you more and more writing in your life. Thank you so much. You're really enjoying it. Thank you. I do. Thank you. Thanks for joining our conversation with Ariel Foxman. To learn more about what he's up to, go to arielfoxman.com. We'll have a new episode out very soon, so hit subscribe and stay tuned. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate, review, or send us an email at hello at maupilim.com. If you want to learn more about our skin and hair care routine, check out maupilim.com and use coupon code SAND for a 15% discount. Head to thesand.co to discover more about slowing down. See you again next time.